This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together today to study your word, to reflect upon what you have uh, breathed out through the apostles and prophets of Scripture, that which you have intended for our edification, that we may come to understand who you are and who we are, and our desperate need to be exclusively dependent upon you. Fathers, we continue our study in Colossians this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand and comprehend and assimilate all that we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been going through this epistle to the Colossians, the thing that I have emphasized again and again to the point that I'm afraid that it's sort of uh, one of those things you hear and don't pay attention to is the theme of this epistle, which is that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. He's enough. He is more than enough. He has supplied us everything we need. Nothing's left out. That's the whole idea in, in sufficiency is that, that we don't need to rely upon anything other than Jesus Christ for salvation and for what we need in the spiritual life. Now, there are always those who come along and say, but, but we need something else. How can the cross be enough? Don't we need to do something? No, we don't, because if we add anything to the purity of what Christ did on the cross, then that dilutes it and, in effect, destroys it. As Paul says in Galatians 1, that this really makes it another gospel of a different kind. It's categorically different if you add anything to faith, if it's faith plus uh, morality, faith plus church membership, faith plus baptism, faith plus uh, circumcision, faith plus uh, uh, obeying the Mosaic law, faith plus anything destroys the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone pays all that is needed for sin. Now, when we get past the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, which is something that many Christians will affirm, though they may not fully comprehend it many times, the more those of us who've thought about it a lot realize more and more that we don't fully comprehend the sufficiency of Christ in, in the spiritual life. What that means is that there's no circumstance, no situation, no difficulty that you face or I face in life that God hasn't supplied the answer for. And that answer, again, goes back to Christ, goes back to all that we have in Christ, our riches and glory in Christ. That doesn't mean that uh, Christ is sufficient for getting your your lawn mode. 
But he is sufficient for understanding the foundational principles of that, which is the responsibility for taking care of your property, the, the responsibility of uh, uh, paying those who may take care of your property. Uh, there are fa- uh, foundational issues there. So underlying all the issues of life, we have the sufficiency of Christ. The attack, as I've gone through the last couple of lessons, the attack that we get from both the internal enemy of our sin nature as well as the external enemy of Satan in the world system is always on the sufficiency. That's always the point of attack. In one manifestation or another, it can always come down to that. And part of sufficiency is this claim that we have in Scripture that God is the exclusive solution because sufficiency and exclusivity go hand in hand. He is. He not only gave us everything, but he says that's the only way to do it is to let him do everything. You can't separate exclusivity from sufficiency. And we all know from studies and from many other, from conversations we've had with people, from many of our experiences, that the one thing that people, including ourselves at times, hate the most is this claim that God's way is the only way. That just rubs the sin nature wrong completely. People want to think that they can contribute something. But exclusivity means there is no other way, no other alternative. That's the only way. And it is total, God's way is totally sufficient. You don't add anything to it. What I want to do this morning, since we have not been in Colossians for a few weeks, I want to give a summary review and kind of tighten up some of the things that I've been teaching uh, as we wrap up this section in 2, 16 through 19 and prepare, lay the foundation for, for the tremendous things we're going to study starting in verse 20. First of all, as I just pointed out in terms of reviews, that the central issue is the sufficiency of Christ. This is why Paul is writing, uh, writing Colossians. This is what Paul emphasizes in the first uh, chapter, which uh, going up to uh, chapter 2, Verse 3 is the, that's the whole introduction. The focal point in the opening introduction is that wonderful section on Jesus Christ, that wonderful Christological uh, section which really begins about verse 12 or verse 13, talking about how Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's the one who transferred us into, or God is the one who delivered us from the power of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love, that is Christ's kingdom, and it's in Christ we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins, because he is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the preeminent one. That's what firstborn means. He's the preeminent one over creation. He is the sustainer of everything in creation, verse 17. He's the head of the body, verse 18. That's going to come back to us in this, in the, in verse 19 here. Because in his being the head of the body of Christ, he is the only one who can supply nourishment to the to his body, the 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 the, the church. And so it is through Christ and Christ alone we receive our nourishment. So the central issue in that the Colossian believers are facing is a challenge to the sufficiency of Christ. Sufficiency, when defined, means that Christ is enough that he supplies all we need, and, and we need not look elsewhere for solutions to life's problems. Now, there are some problems in life that, that are not 
spiritual in one sense. You may have cancer. You may have some other physiological disease or malfunction. How you handle that as a physical problem is is through medicine, through medication, through a physician, but how you face that challenge mentally is based upon the Word of God. Some problems are, are not uh, grounded in uh, emotional, spiritual, uh, mental aspects. They are grounded in physical aspects. They have to be handled one way, but we have to face that with the principles of Scripture. Sufficiency is a term that is used to describe God's revelation. We don't need any more revelation. God's given us everything we need. We just need to know it better so we understand how to implement what he has provided. That's how we come to learn it. It's his instructions to us about everything in life. And he may, we may read it and we say, well, I, I have this problem and I just read the Bible and I can't figure out where it addresses this particular problem. Well, you're not thinking deeply enough. You're not probing uh, into his word enough to figure that out. That's what God wants us to do. If God gave us a recipe book for life, then we would just go pull it off the shelf like we do a systematic theology, look at the index, go to page 32, get the answer, put it back on the shelf, and ignore the rest of it until the next problem comes up. God gave us the kind of revelation that forces us to constantly be in it, to think about it, to reflect upon it, and as under the power of the God, the Holy Spirit, as we probe into it and reflect upon it, then the salute God makes clear to us the solutions uh, to our problems. So God's revelation is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. There's no sin that you or I can commit that is too great for the grace of God. There's no sin that we can commit that God didn't know about in eternity past. There's no sin that we can commit that slipped through the cracks. God's grace provided a complete, perfect salvation, and he provides a perfect uh, spiritual life. So his grace is sufficient, his provision of salvation, the work of the cross is sufficient, and his provision for the spiritual life is sufficient. Don't just think of the spiritual life as that which is restricted to our uh, fellowship with God, but it impacts horizontally every issue that we face in life. This is why over the past several years as we've come to the, as we've gone to the Chaper Pastors Conferences, we've focused on things like such as science and creation evolution. We focused this year on uh, politics and government. We focused in other years on other dimensions, other aspects of life, because the word of God applies to all areas of life, because God is the creator of everything, and so his word is sufficient. second thing that I've emphasized is that sufficiency always uh, challenges, or is always challenge, challenges the exclusive authority of God. Sufficiency is always related to the exclusive authority of God. And so when someone rejects sufficiency, what they're doing is they're rejecting the exclusivity of God. This is exemplified from the beginning by Lucifer. Lucifer is the highest of all the angels. He was the called in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verses 12 through 19, the anointed cherub that covered. That word anointed is the same word 
that we translate as Christ in the Greek, Christos. It is the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning the anointed one. Uh, it refers to anyone who is appointed by God to a specific role or specific task. The kings of Israel were all anointed. They were uh, Mashiach. They were anointed uh, to a specific task. And in that task, it was Lucifer who is the one who covers the throne of God and there, the, the, his dress, the, the stones that covered his, uh, his breastplate were, uh, the same, for the most part, the same stones that covered the breastplate of the high priest in Israel. And these same stones are ones we see referred to several different places in scripture related to, uh, temple worship and the worship of God, from which we deduce that, that Satan or Lucifer prior to the fall was, had a role in the worship of the angels toward God. Uh, if he is a cherub, when we get into the uh, New Testament, we look at Revelation 4 and 5, that heavenly worship scene, we see that it is the four living beings who are very similar in their description to cherubs and seraphs uh, that, are immediately surround, that immediately surround the throne of God. And so we see that Lucifer, pre-fall Lucifer, had a role of directing the worship of God. But he wanted that worship for himself. Now, that would make an interesting application because today we have so many worship leaders who think it's all about the music and it's all about them. This is one of the great problems facing the church today is that we've changed it from an instructional spiritual model to an entertainment model. And this diverts it completely from God's, uh, from God's intent. And then when it's entertainment... Uh, it's all about the entertainer. This is probably similar to what happened with Lucifer. It became all about the entertainer, the worshiper, worship leader, and he wanted to be the one to receive all of that worship and to be God and to compete with God. So he's challenging the exclusive authority of God. Uh, this is described with the five I wills in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, and also in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. What was his thinking? His thinking, as I pointed out, manifested two basic elements. Everything can be summarized into one of these two categories. The first is autonomy or self-sufficiency, independence from God. He became a law unto himself. And then whenever someone becomes self-sufficient or a law unto themselves, there's always somebody out there to challenge us and to say, no, 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 you're wrong. And that always generates hostility or antagonism. And uh, so you have these twin, or these two elements, not twins, these two elements that characterize the thinking of Satan. Now, autonomy emphasizes self-sufficiency. I'm a law unto myself. It's literally, it means self-law in the Greek, and it indicates this idea that I am sufficient unto myself. I don't need anything else, and th this is part of arrogance and fits within the arrogance complex of sins, uh, self-absorption, self-indulgence. When we focus on ourself, then we become indulgent. Uh, self-indulgence then leads to self-justification. We justify our actions, our thoughts, because, of course, we've been focused on me, me, me. It's all about me. And then that leads to the self-justification leads to self-deception, and self-deception leads to self-deification. This is exemplified in Satan. He wants to be God. We do, too, in our sin nature. The problem Satan uh, missed when he tempted Eve and then Adam 
uh, fell in his sin was that instead of creating little loyal, subservient uh, creatures to himself, he was creating competition. It wasn't just Satan that wanted to be God. Now Eve wanted to be God and Adam wanted to be God. And once they began to uh, multiply, then they were there was a lot of competition. Now we have six or seven billion people who want to be God. Satan just realized, just didn't realize he was creating such competition. Antagonism then becomes hostility to God because God says, it's not about you, it's about me. And it's about my plan because I'm the only one who's omnipotent and omniscient and the only one who is able to put together a perfect plan, and your plan won't work. And as soon as the creature hears that his plan is uh, incomplete, insufficient, and won't work, then he reacts in anger. Anger. Whenever you and I get angry, it's uh, always the reaction to someone telling us we can't do it the way we want to. We don't get our way. So we have these uh, two elements now, God's plan is, and his um, assertion of his authority is a function of both his justice and his grace. It's a function of his justice because God is the judge of all the earth, and he must do that which is right and defend truth. And it's his grace because God in grace uh, will give the creature the opportunity to change his mind. We don't know how this functioned in the uh, prehistoric angelic conflict, but it did in some way. And it's not for us to speculate because we just don't have enough information to form any kind, uh, any kind of, a, of opinion. What happened in the prehistoric angelic conflict was that as Satan rebelled and then he influenced a third of the angels to follow him, then that led eventually to a, a, a trial. We know that because in Matthew 25, 41, we're told that, uh, the, that the lake of fire has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. The fact that they're not there now tells us that something has caused a delay of the finalization of that uh, penalty from God. And all of human history then is playing out in relationship uh, in relationship to that rebellion uh, from Satan. So Satan led that initial revolt in the uh, prehistoric uh, condition of the universe brought about judgment upon the earth. He probably uh, claimed something along the lines that this penalty of eternal condemnation, eternal, eternal, <clears throat> eternity in the lake of fire, is awfully harsh for the crime. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. And so what God is demonstrating in human history is that his decree was perfectly just because the punishment does fit the crime because when the creature thinks he can live independently of the creator, the the unintended consequences are so horrendous that uh, eternity in the lake of fire is probably a mild punishment. So... Satan then decides he's going to win this little contest. And, and when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, then Satan appears. He's called Hashatan in the Old Testament is the accuser. He's the accuser of God. And he begins by seducing Eve in the Garden with an appeal that is, to, that is an attack on God's authority and an attack on God's sufficiency and on its truth. He does it in a subtle way. He simply says, did God really say... You can't eat from the fruit, all the fruit in the garden. And just asking that question 
subtly directed her thinking down the wrong path. And he's already leading her in the direction to question and challenge uh, the sufficiency of God and the veracity of his revelation. That led her in her disobedience to God. She ate of the fruit, then she enticed her husband. He ate of the fruit. And so what we learn from this is that all creature-based thought systems, religions or philosophies or whatever we call them, ultimately come and are modeled upon Satan's thinking. Now I want you to think about this a little bit because this is something that, that we don't think enough about. All thought systems, all religious systems, all philosophical systems that reject the sufficiency of Scripture are basically built on those those two aspects of autonomy and uh, autonomy and antagonism to God. Where did that come from? That came from Satan. That means the thinking that's, that Eve followed in the garden, literally we see this, she is Satan-influenced. Then, even though the serpent isn't there when Adam comes along, and she says, look, Adam, I'm fine. Nothing happened. I didn't die. Eat. That is Satan influence. But it's indirect. It's being mediated through her. So any thought system that we buy into that is contrary to God's word and rejects sufficiency and the exclusivity of God is a Satan influence system. It's demonic influence. Now, we want to take demonic influence and say, oh, that represents a specific uh, extreme form of evil. But what Scripture says is that it represents any way of thinking that denies the sufficiency of God's provision for us. And all human thought systems, all human philosophical systems, even though they may be comprised of a lot of moral good, they all derive from this, this foundation of Satan's thought. So all satanic or demon thought is built on on autonomy and antagonism to God. It's all satanic or demonic influence. In more extreme cases, then, false religions or philosophies entail direct satanic or demonic influence. There's indirect See, what Adam got was mediated through Eve, so that's indirect. Most of what we get is indirect. It's not because there's a direct involvement of Satan or demons. But in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is a recognition that there is also direct demonic influence, and this came through false religions that worship false gods and idols. In the Old Testament, this is alluded to in... Deuteronomy 32:15 through 19. In Deuteronomy 32, we have a. This is really a prophecy from God about what will happen in Israel as they become apostate in the future, and God has to judge them and take them out of the land. And in Deuteronomy 32:15, God says, "But Yeshurun." Now, this is a term that refers to uh, to Israel as being in right relationship to God. It refers to the nation Israel in a positive sense, that word Yeshurun. 
That's the uh, word that you found, those familiar with Beth Yashern over on Beechnut, the uh, uh, conservative synagogue there. That's where they get that second word, Beth Yashern. That's this word. Uh, and it's a title for Israel. But uh, Yashern grew fat and kicked. This is the, all of a sudden, as, as, Yashern, as Israel became, became self-sufficient and uh, became, it failed the prosperity test and rebelled against God. And God says, but you sure grew fat and kicked, prosperous, and forgot me. You grew fat, you grew thick, you're obese. Then you forsook God, then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Now I want you to pay attention to the way God is referred to there in that last title. One of the titles that we often see related to God in the Psalms is that he is our rock. That term rock indicates not just uh, uh, a physical stone, but that he is our total exclusive defense. He is that foundation, that exclusive foundation of stability that only God can provide. And so the, the, the imagery that we have of God as a rock is an image that relates to sufficiency and stability and protection that can only come from God. So they... They now, when we, we fail the prosperity test, when Israel failed the prosperity test, they reject God as the source of stability and the source of happiness in life. And what do they do? Verse 16, same thing we do. Whenever you reject God and his sufficiency, you substitute something else. You depend on something else. You seek somewhere else for stability and for happiness and for meaning in life, you've rejected that God is the own, the exclusive and sufficient source of stability and happiness. And so they turned to other gods. Verse 16 says they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. That word abomination is always related to, um, always related to idolatry, like the future abomination of desolation when the Antichrist sets up his idol to be worshipped in the temple, in that future temple during the tribulation period. So with abominations, that's the parallelism, they provoked him to anger. And then what did they do? They sacrificed to demons. Wait a minute, who were they, they worshipping? They're worshipping foreign gods. They're worshipping idols. They're worshipping Chemosh. They're worshipping Baal. They're worshipping um, the Asherah. These are representatives, little, uh, little to large... Uh, figurines, and you find a lot of these in uh, archaeologically in Israel. And if you go to uh, different uh, museums, then you will see some of these preserved. I took a quick vacation the last couple of days after the conference, and we went up to New York. And yesterday morning, we went over to the Metropolitan Museum, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I saw some, there was a display there on uh, Byzantium and Islam. And there were some of these figures in there. And then the day before, we went to the uh, Jewish Museum of New York, and they had a whole history of the Jewish people. And there were a number of these little Canaanite gods and goddesses, these little uh, teraphim figurines from uh, as far back as the time of the conquest, 1400, 1500 B.C., and uh, that's that's what they were worshipped. But what we learn from Revelation is those aren't just physical, material clay figures. That behind them there is a there's an evil spiritual person 
presence, personal presence back there that are demons. So when they are sacrificing to Baal, they're sacrificing to Chemosh, they're sacrificing their children to Moloch, they were sacrificed to demons, not to gods. And Moses goes on to say, these are gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And then verse 18 says, of the rock who begot you. And there's a return to that imagery of God as that sufficient source of stability and happiness as the rock. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. So what are the options here? Options here are biblical truth, worshiping God and his revelation, or anything else is demonic. We don't think that way. We're post-enlightenment. We, we believe at one level that there's an evil personage called Satan and that there are demons, but we've all been influenced by uh, modernist thinking, and we don't take that as seriously as they did in the first century because the world around us has taught us that, oh, that was mostly superstition and just mythology. But what Moses says here, and then what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 19 and 20, is that there was a genuine spiritual uh, person behind that. And it's not just worshiping idols of wood and stone, but there was an evil personage or demon behind it. In 1 Timothy 10, 19 through 20, We read Paul saying, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Where's the third alternative here? So we think that, oh, well, there's demonic, evil, satanic thought over here. There's God over here, but we can find some sort of neutral area in between. But you never see the Bible talk about a neutral area. It's either God's thinking God's way or it's satanic thinking Satan's way, but there's no other way. That's why the uh, writer of Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man because we have aligned our thinking with Satan, but the end thereof is death. Now, this comes out in our passage in Colossians 2, because we see this allusion to demonic forces and powers three times in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2.15, we're told that one of the consequences of the cross is that Christ disarmed principalities and powers, a phrase that refers to the hierarchical authority structure of the demonic forces. He disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, earlier in 2.8 and then down to 2.20, we see a, a before the key passage and after the key passage, we see bracketed the, uh, the phrase in the Greek, it's storkeia, it's the basic elements or principles of the world, earth, air, uh, fire, water. But in Greek thought, there were demonic powers behind those basic elements. They thought of it that way in a very superstitious kind of way, but they thought that way. And so in paganism, in the pagan realities of the Greco-Roman world, there was a real fear of these evil forces. And what Paul is saying here is there's nothing to be afraid about because everything has been solved now because of what Christ did on the cross. So in Colossians 2.80 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you 
or defraud you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, the stoicheia. He brings in this demonic element, which is a background for what? For the philosophy and the empty deceit. That's the ultimate source of those two things. And then when he brings it to a conclusion down in 2.20, he says, therefore, if you've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, the stoicheia, he said, when, when we trust in Christ, there is a break that occurs in relation to demonic thought. Before you're saved, you can only think according to demonic thought. There's no alternative because you're unregenerate. And the unregenerate man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Because you're not regenerate, you can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. So you only have one alternative. It may be moral. It may feel good. But it's contrary to God's Word. It follows the basic thought system of Satan. Now, as we get into this, what we see is that... uh, I'm really talking about these these thought systems in terms of of not just individual elements, but in terms of their total systematic uh, uh, thinking of them totally systematic complex. How they all relate together as one thing. We so often look at something. We look at an entity that's made up of ten parts, and we say, "Well, these two parts are bad. The rest is okay." Let me give you an example of why it's not just enough to remove individual bad elements. Went out on the Internet very quickly this morning, downloaded a recipe for whole wheat bread. This is just a simple whole wheat bread recipe on the left, and it gives us the ingredients. This is the Bible for our whole wheat loaf of bread that we're going to make. And it is. the ingredients are going to be three cups of warm water, uh, approximately 110 degrees, uh, Fahrenheit, uh, we need uh, two ounce, uh, 2.25 ounce or quarter ounce uh, packages of active dry yeast, a third of a cup of honey, five cups of bread and flour, three tablespoons of butter, of melted butter, a third of a cup of honey, a tablespoon of salt, three and a half cups of whole wheat flour, uh, two tablespoons of butter melted. Now, when we look at a recipe, you have two elements to a recipe. One gives you the ingredients or the what. This is what you believe. Okay, that's the analogy. The second part of the recipe is it tells you how to combine those elements together to make your bread. That's the how. You have the what and the how. The what are the ingredients. The how is how you do what you do, the methodology. Now, we all know things like a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. See, that's methodology. So you can have all the right ingredients here and put them together wrong, and you're not going to have a good loaf of bread. I learned this when I was about 12 years old at, uh, uh, at a family gathering in Oklahoma City. My cousin, who's my age, and I were given the responsibility. We were given the recipe, go make some ice cream. Neither one of us had ever made ice cream together. We got all the ingredients together, dumped them in at one time. Didn't work. Right thing, we had all the right ingredients. Done in the wrong way is wrong. But if you have wrong ingredients, things are going to change. Now, the, recipe, the ingredient list on the right has been changed a little bit. The amount of water and honey has been switched. So now, instead of three cups of water, it's three cups of honey heated to about 110 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, two packages of uh, yeast, and instead of uh, three cups of water, now you have a third of a cup of water. 
So you have all the right ingredients, a couple of other ingredients shifted. You have all the right ingredients, but are you going to get a loaf of bread? No. See, there are religious systems out there that have right ingredients, but they don't have the right proportion. It's not right. It's whatever it is, it's not a loaf of bread. It may have all the right parts, but they're not in the right proportion, and so it's not bread. And the point that I'm making here is something, a system of human thought can have good ingredients, but if they're not put together correctly according to God's revelation, it's not right. It's not truth. You have to not only have all the right ingredients, but they have to be put together right, and then you have to follow the right directions. You can't just say, oh, let me see. I think, I feel, maybe we should add this, have some sort of intuitive insight and you change something. Now, if you've had experience as a cook, then you can come along and say, wow, you know, we can make this a little better. Maybe I'll add a little bit of this and add a little bit of that. And it works. It tastes great. But is it that recipe's loaf of bread? Not anymore because you change the ingredients. See, that's what happens. A lot of people think, oh, I've got Christianity, but oh, God spoke to me. Now you add something. Ah, may look like Christianity, may have a lot of the same elements, but it's not Christianity anymore because of your, you know, intuitive mystical insight. You added something that wasn't from the text, and it's not part of the recipe. It may look, act, and smell a lot like Christianity, but it's not anymore. It may work for you. It may make you solve your problems and feel good about life, but it's not biblical Christianity. It's just pseudo-Christianity. This is the kind of thing that was happening in the early church happens today. So in the early church, we saw that they'd come up, they just, they, they took out their blender and they mixed up a lot of ideas from different religions. They had dietary regulations. They observed feast days. They had emphasized pseudo humility, uh, the worship of angels. They emphasized different, uh, visions. Now you may not have caught that. And I didn't hit it real hard when we went through the, when we went through the chapter. But if you look at uh, verse 18, where it says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding, that word for intruding there is looking into something. It's a word that was often used in terms of seeing visions. Intruding into those things which he has not seen or what has not been revealed. So that, that phrase is a phrase that relates to looking to, to visions and bringing in additional insight. Well, it's interesting as I've been studying about this, one of the suggestions as to the source of this thinking is what was called Merkabah mysticism. Merkabah mysticism. Merkabah from the Hebrew word that is for chariot as, uh, based on the fact that, that, that Ezekiel's vision of the chariot of God. And so that uh, it's this idea that there is an ascent to heaven. That's what they developed. A lot of this information was discovered in some of the writings at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you here will remember that uh, uh, some um, seven years or so ago, not long after I uh, we, after we first moved back here to Houston from Connecticut, when we were still meeting at the Baptist Church. And we met at night on Sunday night, so we all got to sleep late on Sunday morning or have a, most of a weekend to get away. Uh, that there was a, um, uh, an exhibit at the um, what was it, Museum of Natural History here 
on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we thought, oh, great, we'll go down there on a Sunday morning because all the Christians will be at home. Never thought that, well, that's when the Jews will be there. And so we went down there. We had like an 1130 appointment when we could go in. And so we went down and we went in, and there were about 20 or 25 of us that went through that exhibit. And we had many of us had picked up the the earphones and listened to the recordings, all the special information. I've got mine on. We'd just gotten past the first station, and all of a sudden Connie started elbowing me in the ribs. said, take your headphone off. Listen to this guy over here. There was a large group from a uh, from Young Israel Synagogue here that had come in right after us, and they had a guy who was giving a lecture. And so I took my headphone off. I started listening to him, and then I started elbowing the next person, take your headphones off, listen to him. We kind of folded in with them. And it turns out that the man who was leading that group was a man named Lawrence Schiffman, who is one of the foremost experts on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's, a, he's translated many of them. He's a professor of Hebrew and Jewish studies at uh, New York University. And he was the, one of the first people to write uh, an, uh, an analysis of Merkabah mysticism uh, on the, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was published in Hebrew back in, the, back in the 50s. And I just happened to run across that quote the other day in doing some, some research on this. And they, they, they had these angels as intermediaries, much like uh, uh, in Gnosticism, and that you would sort of ascend your way up this, uh, this chain through special kinds of knowledge and mystical insights and things like that. It was, uh, it was not normative Judaism. It was sort of a, uh, a, a Judaism that had syncretized with a lot of Greek thought, and many think that that fits the bill for the Colossian heresy. Maybe, maybe not, but it was close. So that what they were emphasizing was all these external rules, and a lot of this came from mystical insight. And so now you've got a problem in the church because of false teaching outside of the church, worldliness. It infiltrated the church, and now you've got a problem with people who are Christians trying to live the Christian life on the basis of... Satan influence, demonic influence, uh, teaching. Today we have something similar. We have this emphasis on human intellectual autonomy coming out of the Enlightenment, that we can find truth without revelation. And that has led to, the, in science, the Darwinist theory of evolution. In terms of personal emotional health through Sigmund Freud, it's developed into psychotherapy. Uh, others who just see the pain and the horror of life uh, opt for drugs or alcohol or something else to anesthetize them to the pains of life. Uh, also in the 19th century, you have the development of sociology, that we can analyze uh, human uh, social interaction and come up with eternal principles. These are now applied to the church in large, large ways. A recent book by Paul Smith on new event called new evangelicalism uh, points out just how uh, much of the thinking in the church growth movement we're talking about Rick Warren out in Southern California and the purpose driven church as well as um, as well as Bill Hybels up in uh, up in Chicago these are the really the, the real fathers of this but it points out how much of the Money and influence and ideas that came into the church growth movement, especially via Rick Warren in Southern California, came from unbelievers. The money to to fund this came from 
unbelievers, specifically talks about Peter Drucker. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a big uh, business uh, guru back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of Calvary Chapel, to his um, to, to, to had the had the integrity to um, get fire his son and his nephew. He uh, kicked them out of the church because they got involved with this. And both of them wrote books that are that are key books in the emergent church movement. And they they both vetted their books through Peter Drucker. So as Paul Smith says in his book, the purpose-driven church movement should really be called the Drucker-driven church movement. And yet we don't realize that out where we are on the fringe of this, we just see these churches using certain principles. And if you go out there today in this ecumenical church growth movement, you can go from big church to big church to big church, whether they're Lutheran, Presbyterian, Charismatic, or whatever. They sing the same songs. They have the same kind of worship, all of this. Where? Because they're all... Uh, they're all feeding at the same purpose-driven feed trough. And there's hundreds of thousands of churches who have signed contracts with Rick Warren and the purpose-driven church model to do everything exactly the same way he did it. So we have these same kind of things going on today. Um, we have the introduction of socialism, Marxism, and statism uh, within Christian circles. We had the introduction of social engineering. It's going on outside the church. But we know from history that these ideas outside the church always infiltrate the church. And the more these ideas come in, then the more it changes the orientation of what is called evangelical Christianity so that we're no longer dependent upon the, the sufficiency of God's word. And so we are in serious trouble. Now, as we come to the last verse in this section of 16 to 19, Paul says that the problem they had in Colossae was they weren't holding fast to the head, which is Christ. That Holding fast is a picture of sufficiency. He's the one from which they gain direction and nutrition. He's the source of everything. He is the one who provides nourishment from the body. And he uses a common analogy that they used in the ancient world of a physical body and how it worked. Uh, to, to illustrate this, that it is from Christ the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments or joints and tendons. These are not technically precise terms, but it's the idea that that which supplies growth and muscle strength and ties things together in the body is nourished by Christ, and it grows with the increase that is from God. It grows that is the increase uh, with the increase that is from God. And the emphasis here on the fact is that it is God who is the one who supplies the nourishment and the strength and the growth for uh, the local church. Uh, I think that uh, the Greek here would best be translated or communicates best if it's translated that the body grows as God causes it to grow that growth comes from God. Growth, it doesn't come because you've got the right formula, because you've gone out and you've bought into the purpose-driven model or some other model. Growth comes from God because you're dependent upon his word and you are uh, implementing what God's word says and we're totally dependent upon the sufficiency of Christ. That's the point of those verses. Now, when we come to verse 20, Paul's going to draw a conclusion and relate it to our position in Christ. And if we don't understand what happened at salvation in terms of our 
our union with Christ, then we're not going to be able to implement that sufficiency like we should. We'll come back and hit that next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your sufficiency, Christ's sufficiency, the word sufficiency, the sufficiency of your grace, that you've provided everything for us and that all we need to do is trust in you. You are our rock, our fortress. You are the one who has provided everything for us and what you desire above all things is that we depend exclusively upon you not take you where it fits our thinking and then we take something else because that also fits our thinking for that is that's not your word that's not you that's not what you've given us we either depend upon you or we depend on the thinking of the world which is just a manifestation of satanic or demonic thought so, Father, help us to focus upon your word and make that our priority and to, to truly uh, remove from our thinking that which is fraudulent and that which takes us away from exclusive dependence upon you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain that you and you alone are the source of our salvation. You provide the way and you provide the means, and that is through Jesus Christ, your Lamb, who took away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that you would uh, open the minds of those who are here who are not saved, that they would clearly understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin, and that all we have to do is accept that, to believe in him and him alone, and we have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that as we reflect upon the message this morning, you would guide and direct our thinking and challenge us in our own lives that we might uh, learn and, and exemplify in our lives the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.